Well, thank you, Mom. You guys are awesome. Being uh, the mothering church for Sailor Church, we, I, I'm, I'm so thankful. It's, it's true. I met Charlie at uh, the Abide training conference, and he was one of the teachers, and so uh, we just kind of hit it off, started joking around. Next thing we know, we're having lunch, talking about church planning, and uh, I just started learning a lot. And so that's what uh, this past three months has been for me, learning the ropes of planning a church. See, the funny thing about uh, wanting to plant a church and not having done it yet is just that. So uh, I'm excited to have been able to spend three months learning. So um, I'm also excited about today's passage. Uh, The thing that we're going to be able to talk about today is being confronted by hope. And so if you would, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 3. It's where we're going to be camping out this morning. Luke chapter 3. Um, so first of all, welcome to the New Testament. Are you guys excited about that? It's been a long uh, journey, maybe sometimes uh, discouraging after hearing about how bad Israel fails over and over, uh, and then sometimes even looking at the failures of Israel and then looking at your own life going, dang, uh, I think sometimes I'm like that. Uh, at least that's what I do. So uh, welcome to the New Testament. You made it. And so let's get right into it. This morning, we're going to be confronted by hope. Um, nobody likes to be confronted. If you like to be confronted, you're weird, okay? Um, no one likes to be confronted, but we get to be confronted by hope this morning. So uh, the funny thing about this concept of hope is that it's something that every single person on planet Earth craves. Did you know that? In fact, everyone in this room right now longs for hope. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's the kinds of people that uh, long for and desperately need hope and know it. And then there's people that desperately need hope and do not yet know it. So we get to be confronted by hope this morning. Um, as I'm thinking about this concept of hope, I I got to thinking in preparing this message about all the people that I personally know that don't have lasting hope. Um, Even in this city, maybe even out here in Cane Bay. I don't live in Cane Bay, but you guys do. A lot of you do anyways. And so thinking about the fact that so many people have to live day to day without lasting, enduring hope uh, should grieve us. Uh, Let me share with you a quote um, from an unknown source Someone once said, man can live about 40 years without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without oxygen, but only one second without hope. Another person by the name of Orison Marden uh, said, there is no medicine like hope, no incentive so great, no tonic so powerful as the expectation of something tomorrow. And so that's pretty good wisdom, right? Like, I don't know if those guys were Christian, but where did they get that wisdom from? Well, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 12, God tells us something amazing. He says, hope delayed makes the heart sick. And so the raw reality is that you and I, we live in a very sick world. And it's a sick world because it is full of people who are sick because they don't have hope inside. They don't know where to find hope. They know they need it, but they don't know where to find it. Um, 
And so by definition, because maybe you're thinking, I love this, uh, the idea of hope, that sounds deep and profound, but what do you mean by hope? I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you right now. This is so weird. Um, Hope, by definition, here's the definition I'm going to give you. Uh, Hope is, is a combination of three things. And if you don't have all three of these things, you have something less than true hope. So hope is the combination of abiding peace, a knowledge of purpose, and lasting joy. Okay? Abiding peace, knowledge of purpose, and lasting joy. Um, I'm an avid reader. I I absolutely love to read. It's probably an addiction. Um, So a while back, I got to start reading this book called The Book That Made Your World. And it's a book written by a philosopher that really argues how the Bible itself has served as the foundation of Western culture to uh, produce all the good fruit that we've seen, uh, not lately, but all the fruit that we've seen in the past in the Western world, including our country. And you just see how the Bible has served to uh, frame the mindset and the worldview for so many good things to happen out here in the West. Well, he starts out in this book uh, talking about a man named Kurt Cobain. How many of you guys have heard of Kurt Cobain? Okay, about half. How many of you guys have no clue who Kurt Cobain is? And you're like, is that the KFC guy? Or... (laughs) Um, no, that's Colonel Sanders. Close. Um, so Kurt Cobain is this guy who was in this band called Nirvana. And uh, Nirvana actually became very, very famous. They, they saw so much success. Uh, I think it was in 1991, they released this album called Nevermind. Uh, I never heard it. Uh, in 1991, I probably was like eight. Uh, I can't remember but uh, they released this album called Nevermind, and uh, it was so big when it came out that uh, I think it sold over 10 million copies, which for 1991, that's intense because they couldn't just download the album on their iPhones. Like they had to actually go get off their couch and go into the store and purchase the tape or CD, the CD, okay? So for it to sell 10 million copies, that's a lot of people not being lazy. That's crazy. <laughs> And the crazy thing, too, is that it actually sold so many copies that it bumped Michael Jackson out of the lead, I think, with his Thriller album. A little music history there. That's, that's for free, all right? <laughs> but here's the deal. So, so the author starts out in that book talking about Kurt Cobain, and it's truly a sad story because Kurt Cobain, even though he was so successful, made so much money, um, and, and had so much recognition worldwide, he was a miserable, miserable man. Um, he had a godless worldview. Uh, the, the name of his worldview is called nihilism. And basically that means that he believed that there was no God and therefore no ultimate purpose in life. And so imagine trying to live life like that, getting up every day, having to put your clothes on, having to go to work to earn a living, uh, thinking that there's no point to any of this. So he was depressed and miserable inside. And his lyrics proved it. And I think that one reason that uh, he gained so much success is because there was a whole generation of young people who felt the same way inside that he did, miserable and depressed, longing for hope, not knowing where to find it. So his, his successful life uh, reached its ultimate climax, which sadly was no climax at all. It actually was an abrupt end. When he was just 27 years old, that's three years younger than me. On April 5th, 1994, uh, he took a shotgun to his face and ended his life. 
And so when we're talking about this concept of hope, we're not just trying to get goosebumps and make each other feel good and maybe make a bumper sticker that says, yay, hope. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about a a thing that if you have it, you can have lasting joy. And if you don't have it, it can absolutely ruin your life here and of course ruin your life for eternity. Because Kurt Cobain did not know where to find hope. He did not know where to find abiding peace, a knowledge of purpose and lasting joy. And remember, hope delayed makes the heart sick. So before we jump into Luke 3, which I'm very excited about, let me uh, give a little background and kind of build up to this text and and catch us up on where we're at. So if you're new here, uh, raise your hand. Actually, you don't have to raise your hand because that's embarrassing. Well, go ahead and raise your hand. If you're new here, (laughs) raise your hand. Well, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, I'm new here too. This is awesome. So you can welcome me. I can welcome you. And then afterwards, we'll go get a free t-shirt or something. How's that sound? Cool. So this is a good day. Uh, So if you're new here, um, you know, uh, you don't know that this church has been going through a series called The Whole Story. And basically, uh, it's the idea that what does the whole Bible start to finish teach? Is there one consistent story or is it just a, a big collection of books that has lots of random wisdom that you could take or leave? So there's, there's a dominating story, and so we've seen, it. if you've been here this whole time, you've seen that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that was the very beginning, and he created everything good, but then something happened. It's called the fall. Uh, when Adam and Eve, the first uh, man and woman, decided to rebel against God, turn away from his command, and do things their own way, because they're smarter, right? Find hope in something else, and so because of their sin, What happened was it brought sin and suffering and death into this world. And it ultimately ended up corrupting mankind to where now before we were, uh, would have been good like Adam and Eve were, but then because of sin, now we are all born sinners. We're, We're corrupted. No offense, I'm just saying. And so because of that, man's greatest problem became our sin. Because sin separates us from the one who is sinless. That's God. And because of that problem, our greatest need became forgiveness. Our greatest need became a hope. A hope that that a savior would come and be able to wipe our sins away so that we could once again dwell in harmony with the God that we've been separated from because of our rebellion. And so the whole Old Testament storyline, book after book, chapter after chapter, has literally worn you out as you've seen the utter failures and sin and wretchedness of humanity. Over and over again, you see their failures. Uh, God will will, uh, call them out and bless them, and, and the people will get excited and say, yay, for God, this is awesome. And then 10 minutes later, they're worshiping uh, a stick. But you've also seen throughout this whole story, over and over again, this huge, amazing, relentless, compassionate, loving, and forgiving God who wants so desperately to save sinful rebels. If that baffles you, it it does me too. 
And so uh, you've seen all throughout the Old Testament storyline this building anticipation. So uh, as they're sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting, there's also been all these promises given the whole Old Testament storyline that there's going to come a a prophet, priest, king type guy, and he's going to show up, right all the wrongs in the world, wipe every tear from the eyes of the people who will trust in him, and ultimately he will put away their sins. That sounds like hope. And so they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for that someone who would be their hope to show up. And so as we start the New Testament, that's right where we are. In fact, I want to point out, do you you know how the Old Testament ends? This is crazy. So the last book of the Bible is Malachi. The last chapter is chapter 4, and the last two verses of chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, say this. Let me share it with you. So, so before God closes the Old Testament storyline and before he starts the new, he leaves these sinful people again with a promise. And this is amazing. He says, this is God speaking, look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so the Old Testament ends with this promise of God's faithfulness. He reminds them before he finishes the Old Testament storyline, he says, remember, uh, I will fulfill my promise. And not only that, but he says that he's going to send this Elijah-type character to show up and serve as kind of an introduction messenger to the Messiah who would come. And so after he makes this promise that he's going to send this Elijah-like messenger to the world to prepare the world uh, for the Lord to receive the the salvation uh, given from the Messiah, you know what happens after that? Silence. 400 years of silence. So 400 years from the moment that promise was given until you see after 400 years the New Testament time period start, leading uh, to today's passage. Can you imagine waiting 400 years for that? I mean, let me, uh, let me just confess a, a little sin issue of mine. So if there's something in my life that there's a weakness, one of many weaknesses, one of them is patience. Can anyone relate? No? All right. So I'm, I'm by myself. Uh, but seriously, I, I can't even stand to wait eight minutes in a Starbucks line for a coffee that I want. My wife can testify to this. There'll be times when I'm in my car and I order, and, and they're like, would you like to add this and that? I'm like, no, I'm good. That'll be fine. Okay, uh, what about this? No, I'm seriously, just want my coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm sitting in line after that, and two cars up, there's this sweet woman in, in some black SUV uh, taking uh, eternity to get whatever she ordered. And I'm thinking in my sinful head, uh, did she just order the Starbucks Corporation, or what happened? Um, so I can't imagine having to wait 400 years after that last promise is given uh, for the arrival of a messenger who would prepare the world for hope. But that's exactly what happened. And so I think it's important to know that before we get to our text. So after 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting, 400 years of God not speaking to God's people through any prophets, nothing, here comes this guy onto the scene, and his name's John the Baptist. And he walks onto the scene, uh, literally at 30 years of age. He, he walks out of the desert because that's where the guy's been dwelling for 30 years. 
And he comes and he shows up and he's literally wearing camel skin uh, with, with camel fur on it and a leather rope tied around his waist. And the guy, uh, his favorite food is eating wild locusts and honey. So uh, lesson, children, if you live in the, in the desert for 30 years, you might get weird, okay? So he shows up as that sent messenger, as that Elijah type. And the amazing thing about this guy is that Jesus said of John the Baptist, he said, there has never been any man born of a woman, which, which is all of us, that is greater than John the Baptist. Now, what he meant was, there's never been any mere man that's been born of a woman that is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was not a mere man, amen? Okay, so, so he wins. But no one has been greater than John the Baptist outside of Jesus. That's an amazing statement. And so John's call as a prophet, as the first New Testament prophet, was to show up and and prepare the entire world for hope. And so that's where we're looking now in Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 2 through 6. And this is the section of scripture that I've simply called preparing for hope. So let's read that uh, together. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Mm. So here's a question. Uh, If you were handed the task of preparing yourself and everyone around you to receive this exciting, uh, monumental hope that's going to show up in your town, how would you go about preparing for that? Um. Maybe grab some balloons. Balloons are good. Grab some confetti. Uh, Maybe uh, have your friend order a cake that says, uh, welcome to earth, Messiah. Been missing you for a thousand years, right? Um, But what we need to notice here is that God's ways are not our ways. So the way that God intends to prepare the people and prepare the earth and prepare us for receiving this hope is through a call to repentance. The text literally said, John came proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so, by the way, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. That's what this entire uh, message is about, repentance. And here's the point. The beginning of hope is repentance. Uh, Until you have repentance cultivated in your heart, you can't have hope. So we really want to know, what is repentance, right? And so let me give you a definition. Repentance is a change of mind resulting in a change of direction. It's a change of mind resulting in a change of direction. And so let's talk about that for a minute. You, you might be thinking, okay, a change of mind, cool. So what, what thoughts, what, what thought process has to change in our minds? Well, uh, as we said before, every person longs for hope. Whether you know it or not, hope is what you need. Uh, God created every one of us with an infinite, uh, limitless longing for hope. 
and yet most people don't know where to find it. And so here's what happens. One person sets out to find hope somewhere in this world. Maybe it's through uh, some certain spouse, or it's through some job, or it's through something, fill in the blank. And so they, they go and try to think, if I just get that, then I'll have hope. Then I'll have uh, abiding peace and a sense of purpose and lasting joy. If I just get that, fill in the blank. What, what is that for you? And so what happens is, of course, whatever that thing is fails them. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. It doesn't bring lasting hope. And so what happens is they begin to numb themselves to that hopelessness that they feel, the emptiness that the world leaves them, leaves us. And so what happens is they might turn to popping pills um, to numb themselves. Some people turn to alcohol. Still, others might turn to porn. One person might turn to endless, uh, literally alcoholic shopping, while another person can't get off the treadmill of that never-ceasing effort to uh, impress the people around you and win their approval. Another person might turn to heroin, um, and another person might turn to an addiction just as bad where they uh, just scrub through Facebook mindlessly for hours. It's It's an escape. And so the the list goes on and on. If I can just drive that certain car or get into that certain college or maybe just win the attention of that certain girl or guy, then I'll have hope. But it's going to fail you, totally fail you. Um, So that that buddy of mine that uh, Charlie was talking about, Josh, me and him, we grew up together. So I've known him since he was 10 and I was 13. And so the thing uh, about Josh, he told me this a couple years back. He said, man, I've always been jealous of you, of you because our whole lifetime, you've always been about three years ahead of me. Uh, and so you've gotten to experience things in life before I could. And he's hated that, right? So uh, I got to drive a car before he did. Um, I got to move out of my parents' house and get an apartment before he did. Oh yeah, right? All these different things. But there's a negative side to that. See, I also, uh, I got to experience certain kinds of sin long before he did. And so that one day, me and him were having this conversation many years ago uh, before he and I became Christians. Um, and, and we're talking on the phone. I still remember it to this day. And he's, he's calling me. I don't know why. This is weird. But he's calling me to tell me, bro, I am, uh, I'm going to go and do this certain kind of sin. It's going to be awesome. And so I'm like, wow. So I literally told him, I said, man, listen, uh, so I've already been there, done that. Uh, got the t-shirt and it shrank. So it's, it's not gonna satisfy. I, so I plead with him on the phone, man, don't do this. I said, listen, if there's any time that you listen to me in life, just, just let it be right now. And I'm pleading with him as his, as his bro. And so he literally tells me, he says, man, that is so good, but I'm gonna do it. And I said, that's not good. And so what happened was he, he went and did it. And sure enough, he came back later saying, dude, you were right, man. You were right. And, and this is not about like to, to bring praise to me. I was the idiot that did it first. Let's don't forget that, okay? So I'm telling him, man, those things aren't gonna satisfy. It's not gonna work. And so the same thing with us, whether it's something sinful, like you, you turn to some certain sin because you think it's gonna bring you pleasure, you think it's gonna bring you satisfaction, it may last for a minute, maybe 15 minutes, but it's gonna fail you. It's gonna leave you empty. It doesn't work. And the same thing goes with things in your life that are non-sinful. Like if you try to put the burden, uh, let's say on your spouse to be your hope, 
you will start crushing your marriage because your marriage can't bear the weight that only God can bear. You can do that with your friends. You, you put this burden on your friends that they need to satisfy you. They need to never let you down. It's not gonna happen because we're sinners. And so sinful things, non-sinful things, they're gonna fail us because they're not God. And so uh, there's this uh, man, his name's C.S. Lewis. You might've heard of him. He, he was a Christian author and philosopher. He's with the Lord now. But here's a quote that he said. I want you to let this sink in. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Let that sink in for a minute. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, nothing sinful, nothing even non-sinful, can't ultimately satisfy me, the only logical explanation is that when God created me, he made me with this longing that only he himself could satisfy. And so do you want to know what repentance really is? Back on topic to this message, repentance is Uh, basically a change of mind that calls you to just mentally realize, just admit the utter futility and hopelessness of trying to find satisfaction in this world. Ultimate hope. It's not going to be found here. And instead to see that the only hope that can be found is in him who is the only one who can give you abiding peace and a sense of purpose and lasting joy. Turning to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So, so here's how that looks. Uh, repentance is when you in your mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit shows you, opens your eyes and, and shows you, wow, I'm not satisfied. This world can't satisfy me. And so you have all your idols over here and all your sins and, and, and even non-sinful things that, that have gotten uh, too exalted of a place in your life. And that's where your worship happens. And so repentance is when you have that change of mind and you realize none of that's gonna do it. That, that doesn't work. It leaves me empty. And so you turn to Christ. That's repentance. That's why you can't have hope until that happens. That's like saying, um, if, uh, if, if I really wanted a chocolate cake and it's sitting on the table in front of me and I'm like, I just long for cake. I have this longing for cake that no other food can satisfy, only chocolate cake. And there's a chocolate cake in front of me. And I'm like, I so want that. I wish I could have hope. And then I just would walk away and eat other things constantly. That's, that's the foolishness of not repenting. And so let me say it simply like this. Repentance is us laying ourselves low in humility, admitting that you and I need Jesus to save us and to satisfy us. And this uh, leads us to the next section of scripture that we're going to cover today. And this is where we're going to finish out for the remainder of this morning. Um, Luke 3, verses 7 through 9. Um, I've called this section pretending hope. And I really want us to listen very carefully because I believe that this section has something for us no matter who you are. So let's listen in. Uh, Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. So John the Baptist said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Hmm. So John here boldly confronts a crowd, and you might be shocked. You might be thinking, this guy's a jerk. 
Like, there's a whole crowd coming to be baptized, and he, like, stops them and says, you guys are a pit of snakes. But the reason is, you have to understand who that crowd is. If you look in the book of Matthew, we get a little more detail, and that group of people is not just any group of people. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious and political elite in the land. And so the problem with these guys is they're getting boldly confronted because these guys were the ultimate fakers. They were the ones that uh, would put on all the uh, religious garb and, and walk around with their robes and their, their dangling, uh, 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 what are those things that dangle off them? Help me out here. Tassels, yes, that's powerful. Tassels, all these different things that they use externally to prove their spirituality. When inwardly, they were totally unchanged. They did not have hope. They were fakers. And so that's why John is so serious and sharp with them. They had a pretending hope. Uh, they literally would walk around town and, and pretend to be awesome. Like their goal in life was simply that everyone around them would just see how awesome they were spiritually for the Pharisees. So like if you had a question about God in town, you went to a Pharisee because they were awesome. They acted like it. And so John confronts them and he says something amazing. He says, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And what he means by that is, wait a minute, you want to come get baptized and, and act like you have hope, but your life doesn't even show it. Live a life that demonstrates that change of mind resulting in a change of direction. I'm not talking about perfection, but, but direction. And so here's the note here. The problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is they were fakers. They didn't have hope, but they really wanted to make the people around them think they did. And so the heart that by God's grace has been brought to repentance and therefore received hope in Christ is the heart that has been shown how desperately far we fall short of God's glory. It's the heart that has been shown by the Holy Spirit how sinful you and I really are. Uh, Jesus said that the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit would be to come and convince the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Three topics we don't love to talk about, right? But so needed. He would convince the world of our sins and, and our sins, and then he'd convince us of God's righteousness. Now, what's the problem when we realize we are sinful and then learn about God's righteousness? Problem. That's why we have to be separated from God, because he's perfect and we are not. And so because of our sins, in light of God's righteousness, the Holy Spirit will convince us of coming judgment. Those are things that we have to know and have to learn if we're gonna take the next step to hope is realizing you don't have it right now. And so the problem with them, so, so the Pharisees proved that they only had pretending hope for two reasons. I wanna share these with you because I think they're very applicable to our lives. They proved they only had pretending hope, number one, because they would not admit their need for a savior because they would not admit how sinful they really were. Uh, at one point, the Pharisees actually had the audacity uh, to point at other sinful people and say, well, we are not sinners like they are. Really? And so here's, here's an application point to that. We have to be so careful because, listen, I, I'm going to confess, I have fallen into this so much. 
It's when you start to feel yourself slip into a show. You know what I mean by that? It's when you start to feel yourself uh, kind of inflate this balloon, which kind of looks like you, and that's what you present to the world. It's the, it's the part of you that isn't experiencing brokenness and isn't very sinful and is kind of awesome. That's, that's what you want to show to the world, when really that's, that's not the case for any one of us in here. And so you try to put up a front because ultimately we in our pride want the approval of others. And so God sees right through that, and that was the Pharisees' biggest issue. And so we've got to watch out. We, we've got to make sure that we're always being real. I'm not saying you've got to show up to church and just air out all your laundry and freak everyone out, right? I'm not, I'm not saying you need to do that. But, but there's a sense in which we can all walk with an honesty, a humility, uh, realizing we are all equally sinful and equally need the hope of Christ. That should pervade our hearts. Remember about the Pharisees, the, the problem with pretending hope is that if it goes in your life unchecked, it ultimately leads to proving you never had hope and it ends up taking you to hell. Jesus told the Pharisees that, that since they desired more than anything just to impress the people around them, their neighbors and the people in the city, and they just really, all they wanted in life was people to think that they were awesome. And so Jesus told them, okay, I'm gonna give you the desires of your heart. That's terrifying. Because Jesus told them after that 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 was going to lead them to hell. That's not hope. That's pretending hope. The second reason that the Pharisees proved that they only had pretending hope was this. They were putting their trust in false hopes. In false hopes. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 together. John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves. So, so he's about to confront them for a false uh, view of the world and of themselves. He's about to call them out on that. He said, don't say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, so we're good. He says, because I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That imagery about being thrown into the fire is exactly what you don't want it to mean. Okay? So when we're talking about hope, um, this, is, this is huge. This is everything in your life. If you solve only one problem in your life, let it be this, this issue of do you have the hope of Christ or don't you? All other problems fall uh, small compared to that. And so they were putting their trust in false hope. So he, here's what he meant by that. He said, do not say to yourself that you have Abraham as your father. What he means by that is these Pharisees who wanted to act like they were awesome and spiritual um, and inwardly they were ravenous wolves and fakers. The problem was uh, not only that, but they were putting their trust in, they, they thought that they were going to be accepted before God. They thought that they were good with God because of some relationship that they had on earth. Uh, well, Abraham is like my great, 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 great grandfather. It's got to count for something. And so they thought because of that, because Abraham was the one who, who started receiving the gospel promises, do you remember? But that doesn't mean that his great-great-grandchildren are going to get those promises. And don't we see the same thing today? Uh, I've asked people before, you know, so what, why are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, I mean, my mom and dad are. I'm like, I mean, that's good. 
Or, or someone might say, well, because I, I, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, you know, so that's why I'm Christian. On and on the list goes. So, so there's no earthly relationship that guarantees that you're right with God. That's not the way it works. That is a false hope. Another false hope that the Pharisees had was that they not only trusted in some earthly relationship that they had with family, but they also trusted in their own works. Let me, let me unpack that. So the Pharisees, even though they were jerks internally and outwardly looked spiritually awesome, these were people that were very devout. Like they tithed, they fasted, uh, they gave to the poor. Honestly, probably on the outside, they would make us look terrible. Seriously. But they did all these things. Here's the problem. Those are great things to do. We need to do those things. But the problem was why they were doing them. They were doing those things because they thought they were kind of storing up credit for the day of judgment. Like, you know, I just really want to do all these things that when I stand before God, he'll say, dang, you did a lot. Come on. And that is not the way it works. So here's the deal. People today go to church every single day faithfully. They will uh, give money to the church. They'll volunteer to do great things for the community. They will feed the poor, try not to cuss, try to be really nice, invite people into their home. Wonderful things. Do those things. In fact, we're commanded to do uh, a lot of those things, right? But the problem is people do these things every day thinking that just like the Pharisees, they're storing up credit for God so that when they die and meet the Lord, and if the Lord was to say to you, uh, why should I let you in? You say, well, because, I mean, I tried really hard. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because if you're trusting in anything, I mean anything you do. If you, if you think there's one thing you can do that will help you get to heaven in your own works, you're not trusting fully in Christ and you don't have hope. Now, I don't share that with you to offend you. I share that with you to encourage you that if you find yourself trusting in, in your labors and in trying to be a better person and all these other things, then turn from that. Turn from that. So here's what I want you to leave with today. You can't find hope in anything in this world, good, bad, sinful, you name it. Not gonna happen. If you're gonna have hope, then you have to repent. Turn from all these things that you're trying to make satisfy you and bring you hope and turn to Jesus Christ who alone can satisfy you. See, you have to turn away from your sinful ways and, and even non-sinful things that you're putting too much credit in and you have to look squarely at Jesus Christ who was the hope that for us has already come 2,000 years ago. And you have to look only at him and realize that he's the one who lived the perfectly obedient life that you should have and then died the horrible death that you and I deserve because of our sins. And then after three days, he was raised from the dead. That was God the Father saying, look, my son has been raised from the dead. The payment has been accepted. Now everyone repent and receive this hope. And Jesus rose from the dead so that he could look square at you and me and all of our messiness and all of our sinfulness, look right at you and say, come. Come and have hope. So in light of that, uh, 
if I could have the worship team, go ahead and you guys can come up. Um, just in closing, I wanted to say that th- there's been so many things said here from, from God's word, and guess what? It, it's touched every single one of us. I promise you there's no one in here that's not somehow been uh, convicted or challenged in that. I, I have been. And so here's the thing. Uh, as a way of application, let's get real with God. And so uh, I believe the response team is going to be over here uh, with, guess what, with a handful of sinful uh, people who know what it is to need hope. And so we're all in the same boat. So if you find yourself, uh, if God is challenging you in any way, just go and talk to someone on the response team. I'm going to be over there, and you're not going to shock me with anything. Um, So let's just get real, and let's repent so we can have hope. Let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, God, I am so grateful to you that you have chosen to send Jesus Christ to break into the world and live how we should have and and die in our place so that we could be rescued, so that we could have everlasting hope. Your word says that you are merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I just pray that you'd help us all, believers and unbelievers, to repent of our sinful ways and turn to you. Do this work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.